fellow Jesus freaks. We're continuing through a series in First Timothy. Women, modesty, ministry, and mission. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. Let's read that. First Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they will continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. A lot of stuff in here that, if read just simply on its surface, sounds a little bit strange to our 21st century Western ear, but I do want to go through uh, just a little bit of introduction for us that I think will be helpful. I also want to then talk to you a little bit about Paul's spiritual priorities as he set them out here for women and men briefly. Take a look at submissive learning and what that looks like and what that is and why it is important. We'll go back to Genesis to find out why. And then finally we'll take a look at life as a saved woman. I do want to draw your attention to this week you will find in your bulletins Sovereign Grace Chapel's statement on the role of women in the church. So I would recommend that you keep this somewhere, put it in your Bibles. It's something that we've been wanting to talk about with you for some time. <clears throat> different questions have come up here and there as different people have been doing different things. And I will reference this at various points as we go through the message this morning. This was written to Timothy, who's left behind in Ephesus. Ephesus was a little bit of a mess at this point. There was some issues going on. I think Paul sums up very nicely in the third chapter why it is that he's writing to Timothy. I hope to come to see you soon, he says in verse 14, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to believe, behave in the household of God. That you may know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. The household of God is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And he goes on to talk about Christ being born and dead and resurrected and ascended. So, very important doctrine, this doctrine of the church and why we're going through it at this time. Again, for Timothy, we've seen in uh, prior messages, there were a couple of characters, uh, Hymenaeus, Alexander, who are upsetting the faith of many. 
We can assume from the context also that there were perhaps some women that were teaching or that there was some discussion about having women lead. Otherwise, why bring up the topic? To set something a little straight, because I know that this comes up in the minds of some, where we see Paul say things like, I desire. I desire then that in every place. Or, it is my, or I appeal to you, or I exhort to you. And somehow that has been uh, stripped of its meaning to suggest that, well, that's not really God's will. That's Paul speaking for himself at that moment. But so that we don't fall into that trap, in the second chapter, verse 7, keep in mind the one who is speaking, the one who is expressing his desire. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So his desire for them to learn to know things proceeds directly from his Jesus Christ bestowed apostleship. So this is not a matter of personal opinion that Paul is feeding. This is the will of God that Paul is giving to the people. We see Paul say these things in various places. Romans 12, 1, he says, I beseech you, brethren. I appeal to you in 1 Corinthians 10. And there are many others in the scripture where Paul is just putting that personal inflection upon something that God has given him to do. The gospel has, as part of its significance, gender distinction. Gender distinction. Because of creation. And we'll take a look at that. Something happened in creation. God made them male and female. God made them in his image, male and female, made he them. And since the gospel, therefore, is the declaration of the lordship of Christ and his conquest over death and all of the things that death had ruined going all the way back to the garden, we know that there's something very, uh, there's something very critical about gender distinction that God has built into the purpose and meaning of the universe. And so we're going to look briefly at that as well. Now, we are entering, in a sense, as we heard, maybe four months, if the Lord is pleased to have us in a new building. Sovereign Grace Chapel is entering something of a new era. Uh, we are in the process also of finding the right man to su succeed Gary in the full-time vocational ministry. So, new building, new man, uh, and other things going on. And what Paul's doing here, really, th this is our spiritual architecture <laughs> as we plan for the church. Going through this first Timothy is our spiritual architecture. I worked for an architect once, and they had things like design boards, you know, where you would have to put together boards of what everything is going to look like and how the building is going to work. Paul is doing the same thing here. And so, therefore, this message is going to be entirely countercultural. Because it, you'll hear from me things like truth, gender, and authority. <laughs> all of which don't have objective meaning and no grounding in today's culture. These are words that are very much in flux. Male-female are words that are very much in flux. The bottom line is the church can only be the church when we church as God says we must church. <laughs> the church can only be the church when we church as God says we must church. Some of the spiritual priorities here that Paul has set forth for his hearers. He says first to the men, 
And we want to listen well to this, although it's one sentence about men and the rest of it is going to be focusing on women because this sets up the whole precept of uh, male leadership in the church. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Paul's not teaching about physical posture of prayer. You notice that he contrasts it with anger and quarreling. We know back in the first chapter there were all kinds of things going on about arguments about genealogies and this and that. And we know later on that there are some men that are teaching you should abstain from certain foods and that you should abstain from marriage. So there's a lot of theological controversy going on. If the church is going to function, then men have got to be praying in a holy way. And you can't be a faithful praying servant of God when you're so entangled in other controversies, which is why, as we see for the qualifications in eldership, that a man can't be a brawler or a striker. So it's very important if the church is going to function well that men are men of spiritual uh, fortitude and strength and not distracted by things that are going to take away from that priority, particularly with elders and pastors whose priority is the word of God and prayer. So you can't be a pastor elder on the one hand and out slugging it out in the culture in, in ways that aren't helpful on the other, which is not to say there's not an inclusion in cultural things, but... this is a prerequisite to male leadership is those priorities and so again not a lot said there Paul's going to say more and of course he says more in other places but now he gets right into and he starts with likewise just as he desires something of the men likewise also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control Self-control is not something that you buy in the ladies' department. <laughs> not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good work. So, likewise, in other words, what is right and what is proper? Now, again here, the main point of what Paul is getting at has to do with the priority with which, in this case, a woman would choose to adorn herself in the body is the goal to draw attention to yourself in a particular way is the goal to draw attention to yourself in a way that would somehow cause others to think of you better than or different than others and so built right into that is a is a, is a way of causing division that may not even be deliberately intent, intended dressing in such a way as to make a particular display of physical attributes for other purposes and some of that does come into the church because the world today defines womanhood in many ways by physical attributes only. So, and there's been a move afoot even to have women take on uh, more masculine roles. So you see these superhero movies where you know women are basically coming out doing what men were. And... But what's built into that also is a lot of sensuality, the way that they're dressed, the way that they're clothed. So there's this subtle message of power and sensuality and sexuality that all go together, as if that are the defining characteristics of a real woman in our culture. And in many ways, in our unbelieving culture, that is a defining characteristic and a defining trait. 
That's why selfies have become the thing that they are. It's why Taylor Swift is the biggest name in NFL today. Right? It's why so many things get so distorted and so many images are put in front of people. And sadly, our young women in particular find that message and may begin to dress in certain ways, not because they themselves want to be seductive or sensual. They may not even know what that means, but they do know that grown men are giving attention to this. And so therefore, this must be what it means to be a woman. And so there's a lot of unlearning to be done. And and then, of course, on top of that, there's an awful lot going on in the culture now, as you know, with (coughs) attempts to say that there really is no such thing as gender and that there are no differences. And our church always wants to take a very strong stand and stand against those false messages in the culture to say that, in fact, that's wrong. There is a sexual binary and there are two genders. And that's just simply all there is to it. And a million and one arguments could be made also, not only from science and philosophy, but we're concerned this morning with Scripture and what Scripture has to say and what gets into the church and what doesn't get into the church. We are in the fortunate blessing of being in a church that is very committed to the biblical revelation and realize that all of reality is founded upon those first three chapters of Genesis and how that is the determining characteristic for what we will continue to be and why those things that fell apart that started in Genesis are the things now that the creation groans over that we see in chapter 8. So these things are, are very intricately tied together. So this does not forbid women wearing lovely clothing. This does not prevent women from wearing jewelry. I knew a brother once who, when he got engaged, he was with the Plymouth Brethren, and he wouldn't buy his wife an engagement ring, a wedding ring, because they thought that was an ostentatious show of wealth. And uh, it wasn't Gary. (laughs) Uh, There are other weirdos out there. So... And he came, to under, he came to understand in the course of time, uh, you know, after studying scripture some more. But of course, his heart was in the right place. In a way, wanted to make sure that he wasn't doing something. Because again, the emphasis isn't there. The emphasis isn't just on the physical. The emphasis is on, there is, obviously there's an element of modesty, right? Because it does say to, to dress uh, respectable with modesty. And I'm not going to get into detail and define that for you women, because that's not my place to do that. As it is, I'm already a man here telling a woman what to do with her body. So I'm already as countercultural as you can possibly get. (laughs) But you can certainly, and and it's it's wisest also for the older women to tell the younger women if there's something inappropriate going on. Much better that it come from them. But we should all be somewhat sensitive to, I remember being at Camp Impact a number of years ago, and very wisely they had a dress code there for for the young ladies. And uh, I remember one, I don't think she would mind me uh, naming it, Danny Racy's, who was also there. And she said, I don't like the fact that some of the young men are running around without shirts on. If the women are being told that they can't dress a certain way, why is it that men can run around without shirts on? And I thought she had an excellent point. They can't anymore. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Compliments of Danny Racy's. So again, doesn't it, it, the message is not to forbid uh, jewelry, it's not to f- forbid those things. But again... As with so many things in Scripture, it is what is uh, your intent on the way you dress and the way that you uh, adorn yourself with jewels or, or whatever it is. And that's something that only a person can answer. And so certainly there was a question in Paul's time, and there were very many wealthy women in this era that were coming in, and they were doing, again, this sort of ostentatious show 
to make themselves look wonderful. It's not much different than when back in Corinth there were people that were coming to eat at the feasts and they were bringing all kinds of food and getting drunk while there were people there starving. And it just made a real division between God's people among whom there should be no division whatsoever. We should do as little as we possibly can as much as it is within our power to promote division or to make distinctions among ourselves that show that any one or group of us are more uh, is, is disposed to being more favorably looked upon than somebody else. I can say I think we're very healthy in that way here uh, in the body. Uh, thank God for that. So what is godly adornment? And rather than going into particular clothes styles, what is proper for women who profess godliness? So, so let them, not with braided hair or, or costly pearls, but with what is proper for women. So adorn themselves with what is proper for women who profess godliness, and that is good works. Let good works be your emphasis. Let good works be your attire as you put on the Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> and make no provision for the flesh as you put on those lovely robes of womanhood. And to do those good works is just a part of who you are as a woman. And and part of that attire, again, interestingly, is not clothing. It's, in addition to good works, it's self-control. Self-control. Think of self-control as part of your attire. And this flows in kind of nicely with the what's going to be coming up about not letting a woman teach but letting her live and all sub, uh, learn in submissiveness because the lack of control there in a learning environment can cause a lot of trouble. 1 Peter 3, 4, Peter picks up on a similar theme. Chapter 3, the fourth verse, he says, speaking of, uh, he said, back to third, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. The imperishable beauty, there's nothing in Scripture that says that about a man. But there is something about a woman. The imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And all of that that Paul is detailing for women is a prerequisite for them to be learning. Without the interruption of all these other things that a woman might be doing and we're doing, some are doing in this and can be doing in the churches today, is to put up barriers to learning. There's only so much room in the head. You know, and I know, when you come in here or somewhere with some other goal, and it may not be deliberate, it may just be a heavy heart, it's hard to hear what's going on here and learn when you're very overly concerned about something else or just sometimes it's our nature uh, I'm sure there are some men and women for whom, you know, football is on the mind and that kind of thing. There are things that are barriers to learning. And because Paul is about to detail how a woman should learn, and he begins with these things, these things then can become barriers to a woman learning in the church and having a place in the church that also promotes a healthy environment for others to learn. It involves the whole person. Which brings us to this idea that, that Paul is getting at here with submissive learning in verses 11 and 12. And he says, 
Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. She is to remain quiet. I think the first thing and the most important thing in this entire passage is let a woman learn. That's the most important thing in here, I think. It's so important that a woman learn doctrine and theology and doxology. Why? For the same reason men need to. So that you can worship God, so that you can know God. But Jesus said, this is eternal life that you know Jesus and God, whom, God and Jesus whom he has sent. It is critical for women to learn. And we have some great learning going on among the women here. Various levels of teaching and instruction. So it's very important that a woman learn. Theology is not just for men. Doctrine is not just for men. There's a time and a place, even within, within the body, where a woman might exhort a man. You know, we saw Priscilla and Aquila come alongside and exhort Apollos. You know, when he was, he was off a little bit on something. They had to come along and show him the better way. Though he was a great speaker. Priscilla and Aquila were known as a team that could go out there and teach and, 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 and exhort and admonish. And Scripture does tell us to admonish and encourage one another. And that can certainly happen you know, among men and women in appropriate settings. That's different than the formal teaching ministry of the church, as I'll continue to, to get to. And so how are they to do this? How are they to learn? They are to learn sort of quietly and submissively. So we're going to have to put ourselves back in the size probably of the regular typical church back in the day when this was written. It certainly wasn't this size. More than likely it was probably smaller, a little bit more intimate, and the potential for sort of outbursts of disagreement or saying something or turning to talk to somebody and say something was probably more likely. Or as I had mentioned earlier, because they're addressing this, it's quite likely that there already was women teaching in the churches. And Paul has to put a stop to it. And he wants Timothy to do that. So that's going on. Let her learn quietly with all submissiveness. <clears throat> so the assembled church is it's kind of what we're concerned here, the, the gathering of the formal body. Okay? I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now remember we referenced Paul giving instruction about this being how to conduct yourselves in the household of God. I raise that because in academia, of course, there are female professors who teach male students. Uh, Gary has, has commented a couple of times on Jillian's teaching, listening online. So we're not in violation of the text here to be doing that. There is something going on in the gathered body when the doctrine in the word is being explained. And let me put it this way. This is right from our statement as well. You know, prepared in accordance with First Timothy chapter two, eleven to fourteen, Sovereign Grace Chapel women are not permitted to teach men or exercise authority over men in the church. The public transmission of the apostolic teaching is primarily the responsibility of the elders, and at times capable men whom they approve and exercise oversight of. Neither may women direct the affairs as the NIV has it, rule as the ESV has it, lead as the NSV has it the church of the body, 1 Timothy 5.17, as that authority is vested only in male leadership. 
This idea of having no authority, not teaching or having authority over men does not lend itself to the possible interpretation also of, well, maybe females can be associate pastors because they're under male authority. No, because in that place they still have a role of authority of governing rule over men in the church, which is strictly against what Paul is teaching. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, quiet here does not mean absolute silence. We know from other places that women did prophesy in some of the churches, certainly in Corinth. Prophesying is not formal teaching or passing on the apostolic doctrine. Prophesying is a charismatic gift that may actually be wrong because there were others that sat by and got to comment on what was being prophesied on to correct it if it was wrong. And there's not that much of it that goes on in our churches anymore anyway. I just don't want to leave you to the impression that women are coming to church and they're completely silent and you don't hear from them. That's obviously not the case of what we do here. That's obviously not the case when it comes to singing and witnesses and testimony and some of the other things that I'll mention. But what it does mean is behind this icon of divine revelation that we call a pulpit, where the word of God is preached and taught, it is done so by men and by men only. We'll get to the why of that in a few moments. And it should be a cause, as is all revelation, a cause of great joy. That it is the way that that is. The other benefit, of course, of remaining quiet and submissive while learning is so that you can simply learn. We know what it's like to have somebody be saying something and you just wish you could bang in with something. You're just sitting there itching to say, he's wrong, and now I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes finding the way to tell him when he's wrong because I can't do it here. But So I'll stop putting together an email in my head now or I'll see it. This happens. It's, it's human, you know. I don't know about you, sometimes when... One of the hardest things for me to do is just listen when I'm right in the heat of battle, for lack of a better word. And I'm pretty sure I'm right. And the other person is pretty sure they're right. And you're just waiting because it's like a chess match. And you know if they make this move, you're making that move. So, and that's a recipe for um, for nothing. <laughs> that, that's a recipe for a counterproductivity. So the, the process of being of, of quiet and submissive is, again, to meditate upon what's being said, to show respect for the teacher and for the preacher, because the Scripture admonishes all of us, men and women, to show an honor and a regard to the elder, not because of who he is, but what he represents when he's in the pulpit. This place, you know, we, I'm glad that we have a wooden base like this, I have dreams and visions of what a neat one would be for the new church when we get there. But it needs to be this sort of meaty, bulky thing that just, um, it, it is the visual center up here of what's going on. Because there's nothing else. Is, what's happening here is more important than what's happening here. Uh, in a, in a, that's not to detract from the place of music and, and worship and that kind of thing. It's just that the men, uh, the, the um, exclusivity of, of male eldership is oriented in that sphere. Submissiveness is also um, 
It doesn't come naturally to us. Again, we are not in a culture that is promoting submissiveness. We are in a culture right now that is teaching aggression constantly. And it's aggression that can be hidden behind. It's aggression that can be carried out on social media that makes one unaccountable and untouchable, uh, invisible. We, we are cloaked in, a, in this invisibility that somehow empowers us to say rotten things that we would probably never say face to face, nor should we, nor should they be done, done in, 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 in social media or anything else. But I say all that just to say that, again, those things do leach into who we are. We are out there in the world absorbing this stuff all the time. And it's easy, in a sense, for some of that to become a part of who we are and lead us in ways of action that are not healthy. Why is it this way? And again, it isn't because Paul is just some old male chauvinist. We live in a world now that unfortunately uses terms so meaninglessly. Uh, but, but the idea that, of course, you know, in many cases that this is just another example of male patriarchy and that kind of thing. Uh, we have to resist that. And you, have to be, you have to be settled in your own mind about that as well. Uh, you have to also be able to say, just because they're saying that out in the world, that doesn't mean anything. What does that actually mean anyway? But why? Why is it? Because it starts out in verse 13 here with the word for. So he says, this is how a woman is to learn and that she's not to exercise authority over a man or teach in a church. Why? Well, in verse 13 and 14, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Another strange couple of verses. Paul does write some things that Peter says in another place are rather hard. Doesn't he? He does write some things that are rather hard that certain people twi uh, twist to their own destruction. So there's a role distinction going on when he talks about Adam was formed first. And this is where we go back to Genesis. Adam was created first. In that time, if we go to Genesis chapter 2, and you don't have to turn there, but Genesis chapter 2, I want to point out something to us that's kind of neat, that helps us a little bit to understand the concept of male headship can be misunderstood as mastery uh, when in fact I think so much of headship should be understood as that from which flows forth what is best for somebody else. <laughs> Good male leadership is intended to develop the best in the woman just as her help is to help him to become the best in the sense that he can be. Uh, when when uh, Adam was created first, and then when the verse in verse two nineteen uh, of Genesis. Now out of the God, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. This is a real nuanced image bearing thing that's going on. Uh, what it means to bear the image of God for, for God's people was, is a lot of things. Not the least of which is to have dominion and subdue and to bless and to multiply. All of those things that God bestowed upon human beings when he made them in his image. So when he made them in his image, he gave them dominion. He gave them God things. He'd go be creative. Go do this. Go do that. Do the things 
that I do. Represent me, rule alongside me in my universe, be with me. So we see something very similar there. Back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 5, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, And God made the expanse and separated the waters under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and so it was. And God called the expanse heaven. Chapter 1, verse 10, and there's others, but I'll leave it here. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. It's part of God's divine prerogative to call things, to name things. He then created Adam first, and Adam went and did the same thing. And then over in chapter 2, verses 23, Adam says... Sorry, there is no 220, I mean, First Timothy still, and there's no 223 there. I used to be one of these guys that over-prepared with little post-it notes to all the little places I was going to go to so I could look like I was doing it seamlessly. And press you. Yes, Genesis 2.23. Then the man said, this was after the woman had brought to him. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. So Adam takes on some of God's sort of naming convention there and calls her a woman. And later on he'll give her the name Eve, which means mother of all living things, which has to do with the birth. So what we see going on with uh, Adam and his, his role of leadership comes directly from the image of God that he bears as a male in that role of providing that sort of um, direction, that sort of thing from which other things come. Because then Eve comes along after he has done those things. So Adam was formed first. So this is the first reason. We see a reason way back in creation, in the creation narrative, that the reason why God wants this to be so is because he formed man for that purpose, partly in part for that purpose first. And man best images God when he is being that, when he is leading in that way, when he is providing in that way, when he is acknowledging in that way. Okay? And the same could be said with what takes place in a marriage, but we're concerned with the church. And then he goes on to say, what does he go on to say about Eve? <clears throat> Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The woman became deceived and a transgressor, but Adam was not deceived. Now, this is not to explain or to suggest that women are more easily deceived than men. This is simply not true. There's nothing in Scripture that teaches that. Uh, my wife has always uh, seen through foolishness before I have. She just has a better sense of things. She can see things coming that, that I don't see coming. Uh, I could be in the past, maybe not so much now, but more easily deceived, even in the church, than she was. So it's not a matter of that. In fact, Tom Schreiner says, Eve was deceived not because she had an intellectual deficiency, but because she had a moral failing. Eve had a moral failing in the garden. She had a moral failing. <clears throat> and, and the deception is just really a consequence. We don't have to get too bogged down in why was he deceived and she wasn't deceived. Deception is a consequence of going against God's plan. That's the main point. Things can happen when you go against God's way of doing things. In this case, deception happened. In other cases, other things can happen. But Eve was deceived because she went against the way that God ordained things. Okay? And what about Adam? I mean, where was Adam? The text seems to indicate he was right there. 
right? And we do know that Eve does not get blamed for sin coming into humanity. Adam does, okay? Adam's sin is passed on to us. Why is that? Well, Adam failed to lead. And Eve failed to submit. Whatever else they could have known what is unwritten in the text, because we see a lot of stuff in Genesis, but we see an even a lot more that we don't see. There is so much going on in Genesis, and we get so very little data in Genesis. We get what we need, but there's very little data in Genesis as to what's going on day to day in the life of Adam and Eve. I have to assume they conversed pretty regularly. I have to assume there was some level of understanding that Adam and Eve knew their different ways that God made. She knew that God had made Adam first for a particular reason. He explained to her at some point how he named the animals and all that. He had a good sense of what we're doing in the garden here and why God made us and we're going to represent him and we have all these neat things we're going to do and she's going to do them with me and they're learning what each other's gifts are and they're naked and they're unashamed and everything's wonderful. But he failed to lead and she failed to submit. Teresa Bowen said, Paul's references back to creation suggest a far more universal principle that something happens deep in the heart of men and women when a woman has authority over a man in the church. We don't have to know what that is. We don't have to get behind the psychology of it. So she says that so well. Something profound. Something happens deep in the heart of men and women when a woman has authority over a man in the church. Something deep and profound. Something went very wrong when a man neglected his authority in the garden. Not his mastery. Not as I am the man. Just as that role that God created so that things would happen in the order that they're supposed to. And that's what came about. And just based on a way of mention, Jesus, after praying all night long, anointed 12 men to bring the gospel into the world, to bring doctrine to the world. They are the ones that put the apostolic writings out, much of our New Testament written by by the apostles of Jesus. And yet he had a lot of female disciples that, that were entirely supportive and without whom the ministry never could have happened. Jesus is surrounded by women all the time. They are with <laughs> incarnate doctrine. <laughs> right? They're learning some amazing things from Jesus, quietly and submissively, I assure you. Right there with Jesus. So this whole idea of, of uh, gender and what that looks like in the church is a matter of gospel. Because again, the gospel is the good news that everything is being put the way that it's supposed to be. God's original plan for humankind is going to come to fruition. It has already begun in the new creation, Jesus. And it's going to happen. So we should expect to see in the church certain things modeled, bearing witness to the world of the way God intended things to be. That's a huge responsibility. And so we look in this last part here is what I would just call life as a saved woman. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Uh, this is not about salvation by birth alone. <laughs> Otherwise, men, there's only women in heaven. <laughs> right? But childbearing is uniquely emblematic of women. It is. It is you, it, even if, you know, for, for whatever reason, um, in, in, in sovereignty, for whatever reason, and I just say it, 
not to bring out any, any, any unfortunate feelings, for whatever reason, some women that can't have birth, that doesn't change the fact that you are a woman and that childbearing is, is, is emblematically, it is, it is distinctly the thing, that, that, that one of the distinctions between men and women. Okay? It's not just biology. There's a female quality for childbearing that transcends biology. Again, Teresa Bowen says, but as glorious as physically giving birth is, being a life giver involves so much more. It is that nurturing maternal spirit that God has sovereignly placed within the woman's design. That's a fact. That God has sovereignly placed within the woman's design, whether she has children or not. It involves viewing children, her own and others, and younger women as gifts and as worthy of her time and best efforts. That's what Paul is getting at here when he talks about childbearing. When he says to be, and, and I'll fully explain the rest of that a little bit more in a moment. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Because it just picks up on that theme. Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Titus is another excellent book, by the way, on the church. I encourage you to read that. Um, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and the children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You see how important this is, right? That when men and women are men and women, the word of God is glorified, not reviled. And so then, in addition to childbearing, he talks about, well, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is just what life as a Christian woman is. So it isn't, of course, saying that these are works by which a woman is saved. What it's saying is, in the life of the church, in the life of the redeemed people, this is what a woman looks like. A woman, a Christian woman, is a woman who stays within the role of women. (laughs) Who, 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 Who... fills her God-ordained role as woman. Again, whether or not there's the physical capacity to bear children, it is those giftings, it is those capacities for nurturing and love and caring that God has designed into a woman. And by doing so also, I mean, I think there is maybe a slight little echo in here of, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a little echo, I think. We, we can't really ignore it. It's not blatant in here about, you know, the seed of the woman, Right? Back again, back in Genesis, right where the uh, <clears throat> you will crush his head and he will crush your heel. Uh, reference to the sort of that first reference to one that would come, that would be the eventual and final state snake stomper, right? In in the person of Jesus. So I do think there's an echo of that in there, but that's not what that's saying here. And neither is this particular thing about Eve. <clears throat> Excuse me. What he's saying is. There is a, <clears throat> a way in which we live. There is a, an, a, 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 a we, we are assigned a place <clears throat> in God's economy of things, in the way that God has created the world, in the way that God has created humans. And just as those scriptures says, those that endure to the end will be saved, you know, we are saved, we're being saved, and we're going to be saved. The point about all of this here is women... Christian women, those that are those the ones that are going to endure to the, these are the women that are living like this. They they are they are staying within the proper mode of women, just as when men stay within the proper mode of men. 
And so the point here for Paul isn't, again, so much that it isn't the point at all that, you know, you're going to be redeemed through, you know, through bearing children. What he is talking about is women in the gospel, when women are what women generated and created God to be and redeemed them to be, then the church is functioning properly. Then the church, the church cannot function properly when women are not being the women that God called women to be. Also, if they're doing those things, they will be unlike some of the other women saved from error and deception. Maybe that's even more important to the point. If you're doing those things, rather than, as First Timothy talks, Timothy talks about later with some of the widows that became busy bottlers, busy bottlers and idle chatters, etc. If they're staying within what they're supposed to be doing, then they're not going to be subject to the false teachers and the false doctrines that are out there. And, and they'll be saved in that way. They're not going to come under bad teaching. They're not going to become corrupted. They're not going to be led astray. So that they stay within that place of salvation territory and salvation ground. They're safe there. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. Rosaria Butterfield, you may know her, she left a life of uh, uh, lesbianism after spending many years in it and very slowly getting to know uh, a very gentle pastor, spending a lot of time with him. <clears throat> I don't know her, her whole story. She was also what she would have self-described radical feminist at the time. Anyway, over the course of the time, she, she came uh, to know Christ and was, was married. She says, when talking about what women do, she said, that leaves an enormous amount of things that a Christian woman must do to support kingdom work on earth, both within and outside the church. Mercy work, Titus 2 work, teaching other women and children, supporting and advising diaconal ministry, Proverbs 31 work, and if called to secular employment, doing it to the glory of God and thus diffusing a Christian light in the workplace. I think I'll just close with the, one of the last statements that we have here in the role of women in church. Um, and let me just mention, I do want to mention, to, I'll go up on, if you turn the page, I'm just going to read the first two paragraphs. Occasionally, sovereign grace elders, <clears throat> let, let me go back and read even more. Let's go back to the first page. What can women do in, in our church? Uh, women may teach other women and children in the church at Sovereign Grace Chapel. Women may publicly read scripture and publicly pray in the Sovereign Grace Assembled Church, assuming that they're doing so is not for didactic intentions. In other words, sometimes when people pray, they do so with the intention of teaching people. In which case, they're not really praying to God, they're praying to themselves. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Women may distribute the elements when Sovereign Grace Chapel celebrates the Lord's Supper. Women may participate in the collection of offerings and distribution of bulletins. Women are permitted to chair established committees and ad hoc committees of Sovereign Grace Chapel. For the elders are de facto members of all committees, and all committees are under the authority of the, of the Eldership, and it's not that chairing is not a position of authority, it's just central information processing, etc. Occasionally, Sovereign Grace Chapel elders may introduce special topics in Sunday services, for example, personal testimonies, biographical sketches, and other miscellaneous material not intended for doctrinal teaching that women may participate in, submitting to the limitations established by eldership for those times of brief address to the Sovereign Grace Chapel body. And finally, Sovereign Grace women. And this is from observing you. I wrote this paragraph just from observing you. <laughs> Sovereign Grace women continue the God-exalting tradition of public worship, witness, discipleship, and ministry attested to in the New Covenant or New Testament. 
and truly established by Christ our Lord. Jesus was financially supported by women and administered to by women. Women were the first witnesses to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The four Gospels, Acts, and Pauline epistles are replete with historical accounts of women who demonstrate a standard of gospel excellence, faith, and humility that continues to bear exemplary witness to the contemporary church. Sovereign Grace elders are emphatic about the biblical precept of male authority and leadership while recognizing the God-appointed roles of both sexes in the full-body ministry of Sovereign Grace Chapel. And I can say, along with the rest of the elders, that ministering alongside our women here has just been nothing but fruitful. It has added to our own understanding. It has added to our knowledge. It has added to our sense of, um, in a way, I can tell you it has added to my own sense of compassion in certain areas that I found lacking. So praise God for the full-body ministry here of men and women. May it please the Lord to keep us all in those properly ordained roles, just as the Lord said to the waves, thus far you shall go, and no further. Amen. A great song for us to end with would be, Be Thou My Vision. We should all have Christ first and foremost in our vision. Thank you, brother, for that great word. Uh, tiptoeing through the tulips there, I would call it. <laughs>